Brutoglossia, Democracy, Authenticity, and the Enregistrement of Connoisseurship in Craft Beer Talk by Lex Canelli. Abstract. Building on Silverstein's Enoglossia, Wine Talk, this paper argues for a closely related genre, Brutoglossia, Craft Beer Talk. Drawing on a corpus of craft beer and brewery descriptions from Toronto, Canada, I argue that the appropriation of wine terminology and tasting practices reconfigures beer brewers and drinkers as elite and classy. The specialist lexical and morphosyntactic components of wine discourse provide the higher order of indexicality through which the emergent technical beer terminology is to be interpreted. Together, the descriptions can be read as fields of indexicalities, mapping linguistic and semiotic variables associated with a particular social object, beer. Keywords, craft beer, enregistrement, indexicality, food and identity. Section 1. Introduction. The ongoing rise in popularity of craft beer, specialty beer typically brewed in small batches in independently owned breweries, has helped to constitute the figure of a salient new persona, the young hipster with a selective palate. This character is increasingly the subject of social commentary, often featured in cartoons or advertisements that make a mockery of their discerning taste and cast their seriousness as yet another millennial absurdity. The artwork presented on the November 2014 issue of The New Yorker provides one expository example of the so-called beer snobs representation in popular culture, figure one. Figure one is the cover of the November 2014 issue of The New Yorker magazine depicting artist Peter DeSev's scene entitled Hip Hops. It is subsequently described in the text. In the image, two young and visibly tattooed pubgoers sit at a picnic-style table. Center frame is a man in glasses who is sampling the beer he is drinking with great intention. He is captured swishing the beer in his mouth thoughtfully, in a ritual of tasting. A server, dressed in an oversized plaid shirt and blue jeans with a serving napkin draped stately over his arm, presents a bottle of beer to the guests in a manner similar to a sommelier displaying the vintage of a fine wine. All three of these figures in the foreground, most notably their adornment and the nature of their embodiment, as in swilling earnestly and presenting a label for evaluation, provide clues as to who the artist views the 21st century beer drinker to be. Not unlike the physical characteristics that conjure the image of the aspiring young Ciceroni, the beer equivalent of a sommelier, I propose that there also exists an identifiable linguistic genre that corresponds to how many craft beer consumers, perhaps similar to those in the image above, talk about craft beer. One that shows some striking similarities to other existing genres of connoisseurship. Consistent with the semiotic vinification described by Silverstein, talk about craft beer is a kind of parallel space in the image of wine that anchors beer as a prestige-conferring commodity, in part through its interdiscursive relationship with other foci of connoisseurship. To illustrate the context-creating and context-entailing nature of indexicality, that is, how indexical signs both depend on and act to constitute the interactional context itself, Silverstein proposed the register of enoglossia, or wine talk, 
where the use of specialized terminology and the ritual of tasting develops a particular discursive genre, the mastery of which distinguishes professional and serious avocational tasters from all others. This paper argues for a closely related discursive genre, Brutoglossia, craft beer talk, drawing on a constructed corpus of brewery and craft beer descriptions from the greater Toronto area. I argue that the appropriation of wine terminology and tasting practices reconfigures a historically working class beverage into a commodity for elite consumption. In addition to its ubiquitous presence in this relatively novel context, the specialist lexical components of wine discourse, such as those used in sensory and gustatory descriptions, provide the higher order of indexicality through which the emergent technical beer terminology is to be interpreted. The intertextuality between these two discursive genres, enoglossia on one hand and brutoglossia on the other, is transformative. Once the beverage of the blue-collar masses, the so-called craft beer revolution, newly enregisters beer as a material symbol of white upper-middle-class experience. The breweries and their products analyzed here are a subset of those deemed the most popular by local culture website BlogTO, Great Lakes and Burdock. I utilize their website data focusing on A, the descriptions of the breweries and brewers themselves, that is the About Us section, and B, the descriptions of their beers. Pursuing a discourse analytic approach, I show how the breweries construct craft beer as something technical, specialized, and requiring knowledge and refinement of methods, while simultaneously maintaining its status as wholesome, artistic, egalitarian, and down-to-earth. Taken together, these descriptions, both of the breweries and the beers themselves, can be read as fields of indexicalities, mapping linguistic and semiotic variables associated with a particular social object, beer. Section 2. Theoretical Frameworks Intertextuality, the observation that whenever we produce a spoken or written text, we produce the words of others and recycle meanings that are already available, has figured prominently in the discourse analytic literature as a means of situating analysis within a broader history of language use. Intertextual analysis draws attention to the dependence of texts upon society and history in the form of linguistic resources, whose use is conventionalized within particular orders of discourse, that is, individual genres and types of discourse, such as scientific German or the English of advertising. The use of the linguistic features from one genre, that is, constellations of co-occurrent linguistic elements and structures that define or characterize particular classes of utterances, in another, can be transformative in establishing indexical resonances between them. Using recognizable features from one genre in another discursive setting endows that setting with an indexical tinge, a coloration of the genres with which they are primarily associated and the social meaning that attaches to them. As I argue here, the indexical resonances or enoglossic vines uh, between the genres of enoglossia and brutoglossia are a key component of the enregisterment the process by which a linguistic repertoire comes to be culturally associated with particular social practices and persons who engage in those practices, of craft beer talk, and by extension craft beer, as fancy. 
In other words, craft beer is fancy, so talk about craft beer is also fancy, and vice versa. For Silverstein, the social meaning of any utterance is a consequence not just of its referential properties, but the ways in which it is ideologically construed in the context of its use. Silverstein models this construal via integral ordinal degrees of indexicality, that is the social meanings of a linguistic form. First order indexicality, second order indexicality, and so forth. Eckert's conceptualization of the indexical field, which has gained theoretical purchase in sociocultural linguistic research, draws substantively on Silverstein's indexical order and Ox's work on indexing gender, and is intended to capture the constitutive relationship between language and social identity meanings. To focus on the indexical field is to focus on the social meaning of language and use, where the meanings of linguistic forms are not fixed or static, but represent a constellation of ideologically related meanings, any of which can be activated in the situated use of the feature. The indexical field itself is in flux, with each new use of a given form having the potential to change the field by building on the existing ideological connections. Jaffe further posits that indexical fields themselves are internally ordered, with certain contextual conditions favoring their expansion or contraction. Thus, she argues that instead of considering only the indexical fields for language features, we should also consider their fields of indexicalities, the multiple indexicalities that coexist and interact. Put simply, all the possible meanings for an indexical form have to be traced through other known situations, social uses, and stances. To illustrate, she presents an analysis of Stuff White People Like, a blog written by Toronto comedy writer Christian Lander. According to Jaffe, Stuff White People Like is itself a field of indexicalities, mapping the linguistic and semiotic variables associated with the social object presented in the post. The meaning of each specific index, that is social object, such as coffee, is also indexical as it is contextualized by its shared location in the indexical field with other indexes. For example, while coffee is not exclusively enjoyed by white people, its coexistence in the wider field of stuff white people like indexes with other specialty elite items, like organic foods, farmers markets, microbreweries, etc., leads to a specialized interpretation. White people don't simply like coffee, but coffee prepared in elite or fancy ways. Therefore, within indexical fields and fields of indexicalities, there is a hierarchical sensitivity. Once a given example, linguistic behavioral, is identified as being part of a field, the highest order indexicals, that is, those that are most ideologically salient and subject to speakers' social evaluation in that field, prevail as an overarching theme or focus. The prevailing of certain higher-order indexicals, such as the dominating quality of eliteness described by Jaffe in Stuff White People Like, is akin to Aga's description of lamination, the layering of different semiotic fields. Indexicals routinized in one genre, used within another, act as a semiotic trail of breadcrumbs, indicating to participants in interaction what is going on. The highest-order indexicals leak from one genre into the other, 
providing the sheen of those most shibbolethy forms and creating the impression of fundamental similarity across texts. In the case of the craft beer descriptions, the use of enregistered indexicals routinized within enoglossia, such as wine terminology and tasting practices, in the brutoglossic contexts, serves to establish beer as an equivalent object of distinction, an analogously sophisticated product subject to discerning palates and advanced evaluation. What's more, in the process of evaluating the object, similar properties are likewise conferred onto the evaluators themselves. In discerning and communicating the qualia of the beer, that is, the sensory qualities and feelings evoked by its consumption, the evaluator achieves a reciprocal positioning in social space. While indexical fields map the social indexicalities associated with a particular linguistic variable, Fields of indexicalities map the linguistic and semiotic variables associated with a particular social object. In this case, I apply the latter formulation to the brewery and beer descriptions analyzed in the following sections, probing the stances and identities that emerge as salient. Crucially, it is the enoglossic terminology that acts as the higher-order indexicals through which the more novel, brutoglossia-specific terminologies to be interpreted providing key indexical resonances that coalesce into the specialized genre of craft beer connoisseurship. Section 3. Food and Drink, Identity, and the Craft Beer Renaissance Fundamental both to survival and social relations, food and language are each in their own way significant components of consumer culture and globalization in contemporary society. As a commodity as well as a semiotic resource, Food travels along with global discourses about food, thus influencing local ways of producing, promoting, and understanding it. Simply put, food is not only sustenance, and language not only a tool to transmit information. As far as the study of identity is concerned, there is much to be gleaned from food and drink, and, in a general sense, the contexts of eating and drinking. In his study of the economic and social distinctions of taste, Bourdieu recognizes food and cultural practices around food consumption as primarily a form of cultural capital, to which access is mediated based on both economic capital, how much you can afford, for example, to spend $100 on a meal at a fancy restaurant or pay $8 for a pint of beer, and social capital, what you stand to gain by having the knowledge for example, recognition as a foodie or a beer geek with all its associated privileges. Thus, everyday tastes are not arbitrary, but based on power, social status, and access thereto. Taste is shaped not just by what you can afford, but what you have been socialized to believe tastes good. That is, good taste is linked to social status, and aesthetic preferences are far from accidental they actively reinforce and reproduce class inequality. According to Lakoff, the proliferation of new terms for food in the United States over the last quarter century, at the time of writing, indexes the increasing significance assigned to food as a marker of identity. In her study of menus in the San Francisco Bay Area, Lakoff draws attention to the explicitness in the dish descriptions noting that such detail presumes a worldliness on the part of the reader. By including all identifiable ingredients in the dish, 
the restaurant presumes that the reader can interpret their significance for the gustatory experience, thus positioning themselves as a person of taste and refinement. Specificity is often meaningful only to the cognoscenti. Culinary preferences and access to specialized food knowledge contribute significantly to our sense of selves. Who we are, how competent we are, who our friends are or should be, whom we admire or disdain. Food and drink, and the way we talk about food and drink, is therefore a key component in the development of individual personae, stances, and group affiliations, such as often the case when beer brewers and drinkers talk about craft beer. While a complete or even truncated history of beer is so large as to be beyond the scope of this paper, it is necessary to provide some context for the North American craft beer industry and the rise of the homebrewing culture that preceded it, initiated as a response to the consolidation of major national breweries in the United States and Canada. These homegrown roots are crucial to interpreting the discourses and ascribed qualities circulating in the craft beer texts considered here, as craft beer is defined by what it is as much as it is defined as what it is not, mass-produced, international, or corporate. Although homebrewing had been integral to beer lovers in the era of prohibition, with many larger breweries selling brew-at-home supplies to stay afloat, the number of independent brewers gradually whittled down in the decades following. By the late 1960s, brewing in North America was conducted on a titanic scale. Following the boon of industrialization, breweries shifted to a focus on efficiency, quantity, and keeping costs low. Since lagers were the cheapest and most efficient brew to make in large volumes, this style is primarily what the growing conglomerates churned out in near-oceanic waves. Though the volume may have been abundant, this new large-scale brewing strategy limited product offerings substantially, and consumers had less variety than ever. With each independent brewery purchased and absorbed by the big guys, the beer landscape in North America became more and more homogenous. Discontent fomented, or perhaps more accurately, fermented, in the 1970s, when beer drinkers who had traveled to Europe and sampled the variety of distinct styles started strategizing ways to make these exotic offerings more widely available back home. Many took up homebrewing or established their own small commercial breweries, lobbying to create an alternative market to the generic industrial product with which North Americans had become familiarized. And yet, the boom of craft brewing today belies its rocky start. It had been decades since North Americans had seen or tasted anything besides the light lager, and the mortality rate for the first craft breweries was very high. But by the mid-1990s, the winds had begun to change, marking what would be the start of a craft industry that would show annual growth during every year since. The craft brewing renaissance had begun. Beer is, of course, by no means the first consumable to make the move to prestige commodity. Cheese, coffee, olive oil, and even water all stand as examples of nature turned into culture via artisanal labor, branding, and marketing. Like other prestige comestibles, the requalifying, qualifying uh, that is, assigning new prestige qualia of beer, relies on a number of strategies, arguably the most central being an emphasis on terroir and locality. 
The footnote about terroir says, Terroir, a French term dating back to the 13th century, is primarily used to describe the influence of material conditions of a vineyard locale to the sensory qualities of the wine produced there. Sometimes described in short as a taste of place, the category of terroir, described by Manning as a hybrid of nature and culture, includes properties of climate, soil, and traditional methods of artisanal production. Taken together, these contextual qualities and characteristics are often conferred as part of the character of the commodity itself. End footnote. As shown by others who have investigated various forms of food and drink connoisseurship, such as Besky's terroir of Darjeeling tea plantations, Gaitan's tracing of tequila as Mexico's national drink and symbol, and Weiss's study of making pigs local in Terralia, the success of indexing a picturesque locality or production requires, among other things, educating consumers to recognize not only the value of place to begin with, but also to be able to discern the distinctive taste of place itself. Previous analysis of linguistic figurations of beer and both its evaluation and its marketing describe how locally specific terroirs and craft beer habitus come to bear on consumers' understanding of beer qualia. Hamer's ethnographic account of a South Carolina beer store explores the institutionalization of craft beer qualia through industry representatives' beer talk, which she characterizes as a kind of commodity register, a form of speech acquired through semiotic engagement by those consuming a certain product, and which institutions then use to formulate and then disseminate speech around that commodity. In the case of the beer store, this commodity register is replicated at the local level thanks to the participants, that is the shop owners and bartenders, the sales associates, the patrons, etc., their access to national scales of craft beer culture, available through travel, mass media, and other semiotic interactions. Beer associations, such as the American Brewers Associations, scholastic endeavors, and skill development for beer professionals like the Cicerone Certification Program, as well as books, magazines, and websites devoted to the evaluation and cultivation of beer knowledge, are all central aspects of beer talk and registrament for craft beer marketers and connoisseurs. Beer talk is thus a technical register of speech, in the sense described by Manning, a sphere defined by interaction with nature, virtually identical to the sphere of work or production, a sphere where human invention and art is constrained by nature and seeks to overcome those constraints. The language used to describe wine has, by all accounts, existed in one form or another from antiquity to the present. But unlike Enoglossia, Brutoglossia's comparatively in its infancy. The beer flavor wheel proposed in the 1970s was the first system of flavor terminology developed to identify, define, and communicate beer attributes. Components include familiar categories such as taste, aroma, and mouthfeel, along with recognizable flavors such as sulfuric, fruity, and dry, among others. As beer connoisseurship in general is newer than that for wine, at least in North America, it is intuitive that industry leaders would borrow heavily from such a well-rooted vocabulary, establishing an intertextual link between the two genres as a means to construct itself as a serious vocation. 
As the terminologization of brutoglossia spreads through the industry, perhaps originating in the world of enology, it moves, though not necessarily in a linear fashion, from sites of credentialed connoisseurship, like the Ciceroni certification, to brewers themselves, to distribution representatives, to tasting notes and advertisements in brewing sites and magazines, and to face-to-face -face discourse and discussion on beer networking forums such as beeradvocate.com or Untapped. Considering beer's humble, and in the North American context's recent history, relatively bland origins, the use of wine terminology in beer discourse can be understood as constituting a type of lifestyle emblematization or convention-dependent iconicity. There is a footnote about the North American origins of beer. This, of course, contrasts with the history of artisanal brewing in, for example, Europe, where many of the styles considered widely popular in North America have their origins. However, while knowledge of European beer-making traditions are often central to displaying beer knowledge and expressing respect for the beer industry's roots, the brewing tradition is highly strict and heavily enforced in Europe. Germany's Reinheitsgebot, literally purity order, for example, legally limits the ingredients permissible in beer. As Hamer points out, this and similar laws explain the craft beer industry's lackluster performance in Europe and the prolific expansion of experimentation in North America, which is a marked departure from the supposedly bland lagers of the early North American beer market. End footnote. Its use in the context of the description and consumption of beer creates a consubstantiality of essence between the individual evaluating the object and the object of evaluation itself. That is, by using the lingo in context, the lingo has the indexically entailing effect of creative power to index consubstantial traits in the speaker. This is what Silverstein later terms, rather appropriately, the Eucharistic ritual moment. The evaluator is not only characterizing the aesthetic object, but also, in effect, placing or locating oneself socially with respect to a community of practice, those in the know or not. Likewise, in the case of the Brutoglossia that I describe here, Beer is therefore constructed to be not just equally fancy and deserving of gustatory evaluation as is wine, but beer drinkers and brewers, who are more likely than not also beer drinkers, are also constructed as equally as fancy as their object of consumption, occupying a position of educated connoisseurship. In the following section, I unpack this argument in greater detail. Section 4. Indexicalities of Class, Race, and Masculinity in Brutoglossia Though throughout this paper I at times use a range of terminology to describe some of the linguistic features in the texts, such as lingo, jargon, talk, or register, I contend that Brutoglossia, as it is used in the examples discussed below, is fundamentally a genre, a constellation of co-occurrent formal elements and structures that define or characterize talk about craft beer. Amongst these are borrowed enoglossic terminology, aroma, finish, etc., brutoglossic-specific terminology endemic to the genre or brewing process itself, head, dry hopping, etc., and both evaluative, the complex flavor profile including technical components of the brewing process, and imperative constructions, how the reader should enjoy the beer. 
Though I do not present a consistent comparison with the Enoglossia proposed by Silverstein, I do identify a number of similarities between his description and my own account of Brutoglossia, and, in a similar fashion, call attention to the specific components that make up this discursive practice of distinction. I follow Silverstein in taking lexical items as a point of departure, but without losing sight of other relevant constructions, such as morphosyntax and the discourse-level figurations extrapolatable from the texts. The breweries and their products analyzed here are a subset of those deemed most popular by local culture website BlogTO, Great Lakes and Burdock. I analyzed their website data, focusing on a. the descriptions of the breweries and brewers themselves, and b. the descriptions of the first three beers available on their website at the time of writing. These separate yet intimately related texts provide the opportunity to analyze each brewery's beer philosophy and lingo in their own words, making them an acutely rich source of indexical information. Considering each brewery in turn, I direct attention to the discursive figurations of the aesthetic object of connoisseurship, that is, beer. It is the coalescence of these figurations, the fashion of speaking about craft beer, that I term the genre Brutoglossia. Subsection 4.1. Great Lakes Brewery. First, I introduce Great Lakes Brewery in their own words. A fiercely independent, owned, and operated brewery, Great Lakes celebrated 30 years in the craft beer business in 2017, making them one of the oldest craft breweries in Ontario. Great Lakes specializes in producing flavorful beers that will be sure to awaken your taste buds with each sip. From unique seasonal ales and premium lagers to our Project X and Tank 10 series beers, we produce a variety of products to be enjoyed by everyone. Based in Toronto at 30 Queen Elizabeth Boulevard, we invite you to visit our brewery for a taste of our award-winning beers. Great Lakes describes itself as fiercely independent owned and operated, qualities that distinguish it from other breweries, particularly those with craft origins that have since been purchased by larger beer conglomerates. A footnote here says, according to the American Brewers Association, a brewery qualifies as independent if less than 25% of it is owned by a member of the alcohol industry that is not itself a craft brewer. End footnote. This is especially remarkable considering the longevity of the brewery, which recently celebrated its 30-year anniversary. Industrial beer companies, seeking to capitalize on craft brand recognition, are rapidly buying out smaller craft breweries and absorbing them, much to the disdain of the craft industry. Including a description of their independence and the length of their establishment authenticates Great Lakes as brewing experts who haven't sold out highlighting their commitment to the small and local values so crucial to craft ideology. Figure 2 presents three of Great Lakes' beer descriptions, Canuck Pale Ale, Red Leaf Lager, and Beatrix Baltic Porter. Figure 2 has solid and wavy underlines on the text to distinguish technical and non-technical terminology, but I will not be distinguishing these in speech. Figure 2. Great Lakes Beer Descriptions Canuck Pale Ale The minute you crack your can, aroma of grapefruit, mango, and pine hit you in the face, like a beaver slapping his tail on a pristine small body of water in Ontario. 
Canuck pours a deep gold bordering on burnt orange that produces a tight snowy white toque. Take one last nose before getting into the liquid, which you'll soon find will be hard to put down. Soft carbonation leads into a sweet honeyish start before it gives way to more grapefruit, tropical citrus, canned peaches, and pine. Light to medium body with a very dry finish. Drink at your local pub, in the fish hut, campground, the beach, in a canoe, responsibly, playing shinny, on a log, actually anywhere north of the 49th. Red Leaf Lager Hints of caramel, nuts, and toasted malt result in a fully flavored yet deceptively smooth lager. A well-balanced body makes it a perfect year-round beer. Red Leaf is an ideal match with burgers, stews, sandwiches, and similar selections. Beatrix Baltic Porter Last batch brewed for the 30th anniversary. Brewed with coffee and cocoa nibs. Deep brown in color, bordering on black, with an attractive tan head. Huge notes of coffee upon first whiff, which gives way to delicate cocoa. Deceptively smooth mouthfeel, considering its 7.4% girth. Beatrix offers flavors of refined coffee, sweet chocolate, and a touch of roasted peanuts. Only a slight awareness of the warming alcohol, which tingles the heart. The descriptions, themselves replete with evocative tasting profiles, immediately highlight the difficulty of neatly differentiating between the technical and non-technical vocabulary, and the co-occurrence of enoglossic and brutoglossic terms in the depictions of these specialty brews demonstrates the substantial leakiness between these two genres, the enoglossic vines that have crept from the world of wine to the world of beer, winding their way into the texts. While the most highly enregistered or most shibbolethy forms may be laminated with the text to provide the sheen of that register, or in Aga's terms, imbue it with higher-order pragmatic values, this gives way to a leakage of metasemiotic descriptions across different types of linguistic and social objects. In this case, via the lamination of the highly enregistered enoglossic forms in the brutoglossic texts, both lexical, aroma, nose, body, the use of fine color distinctions such as deep gold, burnt orange, etc., and morphosyntactic, notably the NP of NP construction, as in aroma of grapefruit, etc., the metalinguistic characterization of the above descriptions as specialized or fancy is applied to or leaks across craft beer discourse, its participants, and even craft beer itself. In short, it is in large part through calcing on enoglossic forms that fanciness seeps into the brutoglossic genre, prevailing as an overarching focus and providing the higher-order indexical functions through which to interpret brutoglossia as a whole. These kinds of vocabulary and phrases are what those who do not participate in craft beer culture, or who at least live more distantly from it, might readily identify as shibboleths, the salient contributory elements of the register. Each of these descriptions overflow with both technical, deceptively smooth mouthfeel, attractive tan head, and more accessible, caramel, nuts, cocoa, peanuts, etc., lexical items. However, the less technical items, generally widely recognizable food products that are not ingredients in the beer, are still in most cases dominated by a head NP, 
that is itself a specialized form. These specialized forms, such as aroma of, in the case of aroma of grapefruit, or notes of, in notes of coffee, are prevalent in artisanal food and drink evaluation as a means to link the described product to other exotic comestibles. The ample use of this particular NP of NP construction, form of substance, semantically speaking, suggests that the producers of these texts, quite possibly the brewers themselves, judging by the detailed information about the beer, have an ideal subject position in mind. Here, this position is occupied by those individuals who can identify these particular flavors, aromas, or hints in the beverage. The ideal consumer is therefore the one who is enough of a connoisseur to recognize the hints of caramel in their beer, and thus capable of the appropriate ritual consumption of the substance, that is, those able to partake in Eucharistic consumption of the beverage. What's more, the dominated NP is often modified by an adjective that bespeaks specificity and distinction of its own kind. Not just coffee, but refined coffee. Not just peaches, but canned peaches. Not just cocoa, but delicate cocoa. Attributive adjectives that qualify the flavors in this way further presupposes a sophisticated palate, such that the drinker is expected to not just recognize the flavors, but also to know the difference between, for example, coffee and refined coffee. Even ready-to-mind simple words in the expert lexicon have more complex phraseological expressions built around them. The NP of NP, a prominent generic device imported from the eoglossic genre, thus provides insight into the codependence of specialized and non-specialized items in the construction of connoisseurship. While certain lexical items themselves may not be specialist in nature, they are still essential to the configuration of the genre as fancy, owed at least in part to the syntactic constructions in which they appear. In this way, even the use of seemingly non-specialist forms when presented in an evaluative stance act to construct the ideal, knowledgeable, discerning audience. By way of concluding my analysis of Great Lakes, I would like to draw particular attention to Canuck Paleo, the longest and arguably the most evocative of the three descriptions. Use of the jocular framing in the first sentence making reference to being hit in the face like a beaver slapping his tail on a pristine small body of water in Ontario, is a marked contextualization cue for the remainder of the beer description, encouraging the audience to interpret the text as non-serious, potentially even as a joke. Despite the substantial use of technical brutoglossic constructions in this description, which includes instructions on how to enjoy the beer, a full and detailed flavor profile, and an assessment of the beer's physicality, Canuck Paleo's facetious slapstick introduction is suggestive of a reflective expert stance through which the authors showcase their expertise while giving the impression that they don't take themselves too seriously. In so doing, they display a metalinguistic and metasemiotic awareness of their terminology as specialized, while simultaneously affirming their distance from potentially snobby or elite connotations by implicitly marking it as a target of jest. This is also done through consistent and near-hyperbolic descriptions of Canadianness that mark the object as a nationalistic product. The foam of the beer is described as a tight, snowy white toque, 
the Canadian English term for a warm woolen hat, and suggested locations at which to drink the beer are themselves quintessentially Canadian, in some respects conjuring a romantic image of the rugged Canadian frontier. Consumers are encouraged to imbibe in the fish hut, campground, the beach, in a canoe, playing shinny, an outdoor pickup hockey game, on a log, and anywhere north of the 49th. Yet it should be acknowledged that the kind of Canadianness referred to is a specific one. Many of these are activities largely associated with white, working-class Canadian masculinity, evocative of the Hosa persona popularized by Bob and Doug McKenzie of the Canadian sketch comedy show SCTV. In fact, the white working-class Canadian male figurehead, the lumberjack, and one who looks remarkably like mythical Canadian figure Paul Bunyan, a distinctly colonial folk hero and a mascot of extractive industry masculinity, is emblazoned on the can of Canuck Pale Ale. As Silverstein notes for wine, features of complex beverage evaluation are characterological, almost anthropomorphic. This is indeed quite humorously the case for Canuck Pale Ale, which is, for example, vividly compared to the behavior of a wild beaver. These kinds of formulations bespeak a particular kind of assumed social position on the part of the user, who has conferred all the power and prestige afforded to one who has acquired the refined dimensions of perception necessary to critically evaluate the commodity in such a fashion. However, there is the usual kind of class-associated anxiety with conforming or aligning too closely with these salient elements of the register. Although their self-description identifies them as a brewer who produces a variety of products to be enjoyed by everyone, Great Lakes' descriptions raise the question of who everyone is. The preponderance of technical terminology constructs the audience or consumer as having specialized knowledge, and yet the juxtaposition with hyperbolic Canadiana and simpler things, beavers slapping their tails on pristine lakes, toques camping, etc., implies a degree of strategic stance indeterminacy taken by the authors, perhaps as a means to mitigate or circumvent class anxiety in both themselves and their target audience. Jaffe defines stance indeterminacy as the ability to align to various degrees with fields of indexicalities associated with an insider group, while maintaining the flexibility of distancing oneself from their status as iconic. In this context, Great Lakes aligns with certain desirable qualities of white masculinity, such as outdoorsiness, hockey, and beer-loving, while still maintaining their status outside of it as specialized urban brewers. Similarly, they align with certain desirable qualities of craft beer brewing, such as its specialized vocabulary, advanced evaluation, and locality and independence, while maintaining a distance from other negatively associated qualities, such as pretentiousness or elitism. As Silverstein notes, the tropes of aboveness bespeaks the anxiety of distinction that is hegemonic for those most caught up in their indexical values. This is perhaps a strategic marketing move on the part of the description authors who endeavor to cast themselves a wide net of potentially desirous consumers. Advertising discourse often aims to formulate manufactured products as social indexicals, objects whose use or consumption indexes attributes of users that differentiates them from others within frameworks of social classification. 
Although parody, as a form of very directional double voicing, most obviously conveys distance from its parodied object, the embodiment entailed may result in leakages of voice and ambivalences of stance. The descriptions above, and for Kanak Peleil in particular, serve up the terminology with a wink, and in so doing, assuage their own, and perhaps their consumers, anxiety about participating in the consumerist yuppiedom of prestige comestibles. In effect, branding themselves as, sure, I'll drink a fancy beer, but I won't be serious about it. Subsection 4.2. Burdock Brewery. The brewers at Burdock distinguish themselves by explicitly acknowledging the influence that wine has had on their brewing practices, which they open with in their self-description. We strive to create balance and elegance in our beers and are heavily inspired by the world of wine. We've brewed dozens of styles of beers thus far, some of which we've fallen in love with and continue to brew on a regular basis, like our Vermont Blonde, Brett Farmhouse, APA, IPA, and Tate. We're always on the hunt for new ingredients, whether from Niagara farmers or foragers, Ontario hop growers, or from nearby wineries. We've also built up a substantial barrel program in our first year, and are now only just beginning to release the first of these barrel-aged beers. 2017 will be a year flowing with funk and sour. The brewery founders exemplify the desire for exotic or experimental ingredients and demonstrate the emphasis on locality often seen in the craft beer industry. They describe being always on the hunt for new ingredients, whether from Niagara farmers or foragers, Ontario hop growers, or from nearby wineries. Burdock's self-description showcases quite plainly how the institutional world of wine has become a center point of emanation for constructing prestige in consumable commodities, and how other upwardly mobile aspiring craft industries might imitate wine or the language of its description for indexical purchase. Here, the semiotic vinification of Burdock's brewing practices are quite literal. They articulate a direct relationship with the local agrarian economy, with a focus on the Niagara region, an Ontario agricultural hotspot famous for its wine, previously identified as a source of inspiration for them, and in-province hop growers that showcases a think-local-brew-local philosophy. Three of Burdock's beer descriptions are provided in Figure 4. Figure 4, Burdock Beer Descriptions. APA 5.2%. Latest iteration of our APA series. Dry hopped with Vic Secret, Citra, and Mosaic Citrus. Magic Rainforest Juice Waterfall. Highly aromatic, lawn-mowingly good. AUKO, 9.1%. Sour Dark Ale, aged one year in Cab Franc barrels with raspberries, sour cherries, and Cab Franc skins, mixed fermentation, multi-barrel, soured with lacto and pedio, the wildest way to sour. Punches in at 9.1% ABV, but drinks like a charismatic tart cherry cola, and is a delightful, dangerous, holiday beverage. Bottle conditioned for five months before release. IPA 6.3%. An aromatic juice fest, hopped with Citra, Vic Secret, and Ella pungent aromas of tropical fruit, mandarin oranges, and honeydew melons. Not a typical over-the-top extra bitter IPA, focuses on aromatics. Burdock's descriptions are in some ways amongst the most technical of those analyzed here, 
And again, there is ample textual evidence indicating that significant knowledge is assumed on the part of the reader. In the descriptions for APA and IPA, there is overt reference to the hop varieties used. This is not unlike a vintner describing their grape varieties. Yet, as is often the case for craft beer descriptions, the reader is not explicitly told that these are hops. Their collocation with either the verbs hopped or dry hopped is responsible for providing this context, and readers who do not know what these processes are may be unlikely to interpret these ingredients. The same tactic is used in the reporting of the strains of souring bacteria in AUKO, lacto and pedio, through the use of terms such as bottle-conditioned and mixed fermentation, and through discussion of what makes a typical IPA. Each of these matter-of-fact introductions sans definitions are indicative of the background knowledge in beer methods and styles generally assumed by the authors. Readers are therefore presumed to possess some fluency in the brutoglossic genre, even if they must negotiate their relationship with this ideal subject position through deduction, whether through the collocation of nouns, Vic secret, mosaic, etc., with associated verbal processes, dry-hopped, or via analogical extension of previously known enoglossic terminology, aromatic, etc. However, there are playful tones to be found in here as well. Some of the most graphic sensory qualities include APA's description as a magic rainforest juice waterfall, AUKO as a charismatic tart cherry cola, and IPA as an aromatic juice fest, puzzling or perhaps even unplaceable qualia for those distant from the genre. Not unlike Great Lakes' jocular invocation of Canadiana, Burdock's emphasis on their relationship with their supply chain, combined with constructions and comparisons to simpler things, such as lawn mowingly good and a charismatic tart cherry cola, suggest a doing being ordinary that frames the enjoyment of craft beer as uncomplicated, down-to-earth, and relatable. Qualia that invoke a resonant feeling, or affective state, as much as they do a sensory experience for the palate. Section 5. The Enregisterment of Connoisseurship Every prestige comestible is now in some way wrapped up in enoglossia, teaching consumers that a product must be aesthetically perceived just like wine. For craft beer, it is through the appropriation of wine terminology and tasting practice, but also, simultaneously, the juxtaposition with less fancy things like winter hats, yard work, and colas, that a historically working-class beverage and its brewers and drinkers are reconfigured into something classy. And yet, while drawing on the intertextuality with the enoglossic lexicon and register to imbue beer with fanciness, the brewers still demonstrate their rejection of the elitism that comes with prestige consumerism. While Burdock and Great Lakes may in part clothe their language in the mantle of wine-speak, through the calking of shibboleth-y enoglossic lexical terms and phrases, they appear to do so somewhat self-consciously. They democratically market their beer as for everyone, share their brewing recipes and processes widely, and emphasize a deeply local orientation that suggests a resistance to aligning with privileged communities. Microbreweries often invoke place as a means to distinguish themselves, establish connection with their community of consumers, and construct craft beer as a product that accepts residual culture from Western European folk practices of brewing 
while simultaneously anchoring them and making them familiar in local history and culture. Marketers emphasize the folksy local connections in their products, crafting narratives that solidify the centrality of the local community while still embracing beer's historical stylistic roots. As Paxson notes in her analysis of American artisanal cheesemaking, discourses of terroir and locality provide consumers with an opportunity for re-territorialization, for drawing meaningful lines of connection among people, culture, and place to invest place anew with effective significance and material relevance. Locality is as much an ideological commitment that displays the values of the company as it communicates particular qualia of the product itself. This self-positioning as locally relevant, egalitarian, and artisanal alternatives to brews produced by mass franchises imparts an authenticity on both the product and the brewers, leading both to be perceived as genuine. Indeed, authenticity emerges as an anchoring theme throughout all of the texts. Previous research in the heritage tourism industry and the emergent field of language materiality has indicated that language is often at the center of commodification practices, and the commodification of authenticity, what counts as a certifiably excellent product, is a salient discursive figuration. As Kavanaugh and Shankar observe, notions of authenticity are produced by both material and linguistic means, such that materiality and language work together to generate cultural and economic value. Though the breweries discussed in the previous section codify their authenticity in different ways, Great Lakes by their independence and longevity, Burdock through their knowledge of the world of wine and the local supply chain, both leverage this authenticity in marketing their brews as genuine craft commodities, further co-constructed through the specialized terminology required to describe it to the consumer. The link between Brutoglossia and marketing is a crucial one, because fundamentally the brewery and beer descriptions above are about selling beer. A key function of Brutoglossia is to make products desirable for purchase and consumption. Considering the price differential between craft and industrially produced beer, roughly $3.75 to $4 Canadian dollars and up for a pint-sized can of the former, compared to roughly $2.15 of the latter, Brutoglossia also functions to communicate that it is worth the price. It is the talk that occurs as part of production processes in the attempt to link what something means with what it is worth. Perhaps due to overall smaller budgets, independent craft breweries rarely advertise either in print or on television. Thus, the descriptions of their beers are typically in and of themselves their sole form of advertisement, and to this end, discourses of connoisseurship are highly valuable. Yet instead of aligning themselves explicitly with the elite, the breweries analyzed here elect instead to emphasize the democracy of independent small-batch brewing, in line with larger trends within the craft industry in general. Johnston and Bauman, in their volume on foodies and the gourmet foodscape, found a tension between democracy and distinction among self-identified foodies. Snobbism is in decline in culinary circles, with meritocracy working to cultivate an inclusive cultural ethos, where good old-fashioned authentic charm and absence of pretentiousness are the most highly valued characteristics. On the other hand, though these frames of authenticity contain elements of democratic inclusivity, 
they simultaneously reinforce and reproduce class distinctions by validating a narrow range of foods that require considerable cultural and economic capital to produce or obtain, as well as to properly enjoy. Cotter and Valentissen similarly found that democracy was a salient theme in discourses of specialty coffee. Despite its marketing as an equitable, sustainability-minded product, specialty coffee remains walled off by larger socioeconomic and racial hierarchies, resulting in indexicals pointing to both higher and lower class positions that they refer to in later work as bivalent class indexicality. Weiss, in investigating the North Carolina pork industry, found that race and class are uneasily incorporated into the politics of local food and pastured pig production, and that African-American pig farmers in the region reject the discourse of local food, though their practices could be accurately described as local and cooperative regardless, even if they do not enjoy recognition for it. The adoption of labels such as local or craft can be uneven or fraught, demonstrating that these concepts are not mere existential conditions, but specific orientations towards methods and values of production. That similar, if not the same, patterns are reproduced in the craft beer industry highlights some of the ways in which Brutoglossia is not simple beer snobbery that stands apart from other kinds of talk about craft products. Rather, it is an elite genre that exists within a broader linguistic landscape of connoisseurship, a linguistics of craft, or perhaps in Silverstein's terms, a network of semiotic vinification that spans multiple genres of distinction which are themselves intimately linked to broader cultural trends of egalitarianism and the valuing of authenticity in craft products. It should be noted, however, that despite the egalitarianism in the beer texts above, that is, beer is for everyone, the craft beer industry remains overwhelmingly white and male-dominated in the demographics of both brewers and drinkers. A presentation at the 2016 Craft Brewers Conference in Philadelphia showed that 75% of weekly craft beer drinkers were men, and 60% of weekly craft beer drinkers were white. A recent study conducted at Auburn University found that only 29% of brewery workers were women, and though no figures yet exist, signs point to there being even fewer people of color. Though the cultural tides are changing, the movement is slow. Perhaps unsurprising for a beverage that has been historically marketed largely to white working class men. While drinkers must possess the knowledge of terminology and the palate required to appropriately enjoy craft beer and participate in the evaluative processes prescribed by the brewers, access to this knowledge, and the brutoglossic genre more generally, is restrictive and mitigated by socioeconomic barriers. Here lies the intersection between economic and social capital described by Bourdieu in that to acquire the consubstantial traits that drinking the fancy beer would confer upon them, consumers must be able to afford it in the first place. A footnote says, this is especially significant when taking into consideration the role of gentrification in the craft industry. Craft breweries, along with other artisanal businesses, often pop up in low-income neighborhoods where locals may be especially unlikely to be able to afford, for example, a $9 pint. Though the much-needed deep dive into the issue of gentrification in the craft beer industry is unfortunately beyond the scope of this paper, future research should explore this in greater detail. End footnote. 
This is also what Silverstein refers to as the sociolinguistic division of denotational labor, whereby the asymmetric distribution of specialized ways of communicating across a population organizes that population relative to a division of indexically signaled knowledge. Mirroring larger class, racial, and gender inequities, this asymmetry is a key contributor to the reconfiguration of craft beer as an ostensibly white, upper-middle-class commodity, and likely a contributing factor to the class anxiety and democratic values that its marketers and consumers are keen to display. Keeping all of this in mind, Figure 5 presents a cursory proposal for the fields of indexicalities for craft beer and craft beer identities as borne out in the texts above. These can be understood as specific kinds of consumer identities, or specific identities achieved not just through the consumption of craft beer, but importantly through talk about craft beer itself. Figure 5. Fields of indexicalities for craft beer and craft beer identities. Craft beer. Fancy, elite, comparable to other prestige comestibles, for example, wine. Technical, specialized, requiring knowledge and refinement of methods to both brew and enjoy. Artistic, crafty, artisanal. Authentic, local, Canadian, but preferably regional neighborhood specific, down to earth. There is then a table contrasting the reflexive craft beer drinker versus the non-reflexive craft beer drinker, and then there is another box representing the unknowledgeable beer drinker that is off in the distance. I will compare the reflexive and non-reflexive craft beer drinkers one by one. The reflexive one has an egalitarian stance, versus the non-reflexive one has an expert stance. Democratic, progressive, versus fancy, elite, exclusive. Hoser persona versus hipster persona. Specialized vocabulary used unseriously versus specialized vocabulary used seriously. Strategic stance in determinacy, simultaneous participation in and distance from elite or snobby stances versus displays unreflexive snobbiness that is lacking in self-awareness of the ideological nature of their consumption practices. The dotted line dividing the middle two beer-drinking identities, the reflexive and the non-reflexive craft beer drinker, indicates the porousness of these two identities in relation to one another. The reflexive beer drinker embodies the idealized qualities of the craft beer industry. They are egalitarian in espousing the idea that craft beer is for everyone, may prefer less serious personae such as the amiable beer-swilling hoser as opposed to the thoughtfully sipping hipster consumer prototype, and use the specialized brutoglossic terminology unseriously or in jest. They also exhibit a strategic stance in determinacy, aligning to various degrees with the indexicalities associated with the insider group of brutoglossia speakers, such as its specialized lexicon, advanced evaluation and means of production, and locality, while maintaining the flexibility of distancing themselves from their status as iconic such as through the use of humor and juxtaposing craft beer with ordinary, i.e. non-craft things like yard work, dessert, or outdoor activities. That is, they display a self-awareness of the ideological nature of their consumption practices and how it figures into broader political discourses regarding privilege and access to products of distinction, 
but reject negatively associated qualities of pretentiousness or elitism that may come along with aligning too closely with craft beer's fanciness. This is the position largely occupied by the breweries discussed in the previous section. The non-reflexive craft drinker, by comparison, displays a lack of awareness of the ideological nature of their consumption, or at least does not shy away from the risk of snobbiness. As such, the non-reflexive craft beer drinker employs brutoglossic terminology seriously and without humor, demonstrating their overt and exclusive in-group connoisseurship through their expert stances towards the product. This is likely the prototypical craft beer drinker exemplified in media representations, such as in Figure 1, that configure contemporary craft beer culture as grandiose and pompous. It is also the characterological figure who the brewers themselves seem to want to distance themselves from, albeit to differing degrees. From a marketing perspective, this may be a strategic move, enabling the brewers to cast a wide net of desiring consumers, capturing both the hosers and the hipsters in the Canadian, or at least Ontarian, craft beer market. Lastly, there is yet another identity represented in the figure above, the unknowledgeable beer drinker, the consumer who does not have access to the brutoglossic genre and who may possibly drink less desirable, that is non-craft, beer. A footnote here says, The consumption of non-craft beer may be for socioeconomic reasons in that individuals do not have the means to purchase craft beer, or it may be an intentional rejection. A number of large beer conglomerates have sought to capitalize on persistent derision of craft beer culture, such as Budweiser's 2015 Super Bowl ad that claims themselves to be proudly a macro beer, and both implicitly and explicitly marks the craft beer drinker as an errant consumer. The subtext of the ad is that craft beer and the tasting rituals of craft beer consumption are pretentious and unmasculine, a view likely shared by many of their customers. End footnote. The existence of this identity as separate from the reflexive and non-reflexive craft beer drinkers highlights the in-group and out-group nature of the brutoglossic genre. Its use functions to differentiate in-group and out-group members by delimiting the boundaries between who is in the know and who isn't. The presence of all three identities as embedded within the indexicalities for craft beer as a social and material object at the top of the figure indicates that they are mediated through beer itself, also indicated by the dotted lines surrounding each identity position. That is to say, each of the indexical fields are interpreted in relation to one another, existing in relationships of fundamental connection and mutual constitution. Section 6. Conclusions in sum, I have argued for a specific discursive genre of craft beer talk, Brutoglossia, presenting an analysis of a small sample of craft beer and brewery descriptions from the city of Toronto, Canada. Taken together, the fancy nature of the Brutoglossic texts, the price of craft beer, and the involvement of the craft industry in the gentrification of low-income neighbourhoods suggests primarily a class distinction with regards to access to the genre and, to be sure, craft beer itself. However, it's important to note that class is also inflected by race and gender, both in the textual descriptions and in the demographics of craft beer consumption and the craft beer industry itself. Much like other prestige products of consumption, 
craft beer is becoming an increasingly important part of the emergent hipster yuppie lifestyle, where authenticity and locality are key selling points. While the spread of territorial terroirs and qualia are regionally variable, in the case of Burdock and Great Lakes, and perhaps Toronto craft breweries in general, the invocation of the regional characterological forms of the hipster and the hoser are emblematic of the class anxieties within the Canadian craft beer market. These contrasting images of masculinity represent the distinctions in consumptive class, what Silverstein describes as the key kind of class distinction in late capitalism, and that which drives consumers' anxieties of identity manifest by the second-order indexicals of prestigious verbal enregisterment. In this way, analysis of locally specific instances of brutoglossia proves highly expository in contributing to a greater understanding of the linguistic formation of collective projects of connoisseurship and the ways in which regional characterological forms are imbricated with other prestige linguistic resources to construct the enregistered language of elite consumption. As the saying goes, in Cerevisia Veritas. This work was supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada Doctoral CGS Award number 767-2017-1436. Acknowledgements. I'm indebted to a great number of friends and colleagues who eagerly discussed and partook in, talk about, craft beer with me over the last few years. Great thanks to Atika Hachimi, Alejandro Paz, Derek Dennis, Archie Crowley, the University of Toronto Language Variation and Change Research Group, and audience members at NWAV 48 in Eugene, Oregon, for their thoughtful and invaluable feedback at various stages of this work. Last but not least, I extend my sincerest gratitude to the fabulous local breweries for brewing such outstanding beer and for generating such exquisite discourse. <laughs>